0: Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The other day I was at a kid's birthday party, and a fellow dad was joking that when we were kids, it was all bang, 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 and now it's all pew, pew, pew. He was talking about video games and lasers as opposed to, I'm guessing, cowboys? Actually, as I remember childhood, it was all... I was five years old when Star Wars A New Hope came out, and like everyone who grew up back then, I had sci-fi seeping into my very pores. Alien civilizations, cyborg killers, the dark, unfeeling menace of advanced technology. Because there can never be too many Jasons, my guest today is the Hugo Award-winning writer, Jason Heller. He's here to tell the eerie and fascinating tale of how sci-fi seeped into the pores of popular music in the 1970s and how, along with psychedelic drugs and electronic instruments, it produced and was transformed by David Bowie and others into something rich and strange, something that changed the face of music and pop culture forever. His new book is Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade Sci-Fi Exploded. Welcome to Think Again, Jason. Thanks. Bowie is the through line here, yeah? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Bowie is definitely the main character, if you will, in this nonfiction book. David Bowie personally was the first concert uh, I ever saw when I was fifteen. First concert you ever saw? Like your parents never took you to one before? Never. That? Oh, my mom partied hard. She went to her own concert. <laughs> okay. she, didn't bring, she didn't bring the kids with her. <laughs> All right. She's a great lady, and she's very much a rocker. So while she didn't take me to concerts as a kid, music was always the language that was spoken in our household. I also was five years old when Star Wars came out. So that's the decade that I was mostly immersed in music as well. Got you. So, Bowie,
0: you got tickets.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Bowie. So, I got tickets and camped out, and it was 1987, so it was the Glass Spider Tour, which has been reviled since, critically, for being overblown and pompous and pretentious. But to be that age and being a science fiction fan since I was five and since I had seen Star Wars in 1977, to see Bowie in 1987 really galvanized everything for me when it came to the connection between science fiction and music.
0: There's a couple of interesting strains going on. I mean, in sci-fi generally, and then that, of course, spills over into sci-fi music, sort of dystopia, like a, you know, terror of the unknown future, and then a kind of escapism. These seem to be sort of the two poles, yeah? That's what's really interesting
1: about the 70s in terms of science fiction, is that was one of the big turning points when it came to a transition from the golden age of science fiction, which was much more optimistic and positive about the future. And then as the 60s went into the 70s, there was this new strain of science fiction that was much more dark. Uh, Morally ambiguous, anti-heroic. Bowie really kind of rode the cusp of that. When the Apollo moon landing happened in 1969, which of course coincided with Bowie's space oddity coming out, that was a really big marker of... Mankind, of course, taking great strides forward toward the science fictional future. And then David Bowie singing in Space Oddity about how that future of humankind in space could be terrifying, existentially dreadful, and rife with all kinds of
0: psychotic disassociation. So Kubrick's film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, comes out in 1968. Is that right? And then yep. 69 during the Apollo 11 moon landing, pl- the BBC is playing Bowie's song Space Oddity, which is this beautiful song, but about getting lost in the vacuum of space, yes? It's a funny anecdote and a telling one. There mm-hmm. is a producer
1: at the BBC during the Apollo 11 11- moon moon landing, when, of course, they're broadcasting all this imagery of Neil Armstrong and company on the moon. And they know that there's this song about some spaceman that's on the charts. (laughs) And so some very well-meaning yet clueless producer at the BBC says, oh, play that song while they're walking on the moon. Yeah, it's the
0: one about space, you know, there's like
1: astronauts and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, at that time, (laughs) the assumption was if it was a science fiction song, well, then it must be chipper and happy and optimistic or silly or something like that. Because
0: they weren't used to this new kind of shift They were not used to
1: it. They were not used to, you know, a song that is as morbid and terrifying at its heart as Space Oddity. The least suitable song to play over the Apollo 11 landing. (laughs)
0: That's hilarious. I mean, let's problematize this historical arc, though. I mean, by Golden Age sci-fi, weren't there lots of stories with, like, Day of the Triffids and Mm -hmm. stuff about, you know, aliens taking over the... Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you, John yeah, Wyndham... what do we mean by, yeah, Yeah, John
1: Wyndham, yeah. you know, and Day of the Triffids is a great example, though I would say that John Wyndham is definitely an example of sort of uh, someone who broke more from what the golden age of okay. science fiction did. And the British writers in general were a little more grim okay. from that time. You know, you had J.G. Ballard and things like that who began writing in what is technically the golden age. But for the most part, of course, there were dangers and threats and things like that. But usually in the golden age, of science fiction, human beings did win out, and it was pretty clear cut who the good guys and the bad guys were. Okay, And the bad guys were often from outer space, and the good guys were often the people from Earth, but it isn't just the fact of, it isn't just the subject matter, it's the way these stories were delivered. Going into the 60s and 70s, science fiction began using experimental literary techniques, cut-up techniques as pioneered by William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen, and then also using Non-linear narratives, vague and morally ambiguous endings rather than a pat, heroic, traditionally satisfying ending. So these are some of the literary devices that David Bowie began using, and a lot of musicians in the 70s also used in their music.
0: That ambiguity and ambivalence, it feels somehow between the poles of dystopianism on the one hand and utopian escapism on the other hand. Absolutely. And that really came into fruition toward the end of the
1: 70s. Because by that point, there's a paradox there that you're that you're detailing, and musicians really began to embrace and really accentuate that paradox. By the end of the 70s, you have Punk rockers who are picking up synthesizers, which synthesizers are the tools of progressive rock. That, that's something that that is supposed to be verboten to the punk rocker, but they're picking up synthesizers. Then you have people like Gary Newman, who by the end of the '70s is making music that both embraces and shows the horror of encroaching technology. It doesn't try to judge and it doesn't try to portray the future as either a dystopia or a utopia. It just is. And he's someone who lives in it
0: and is reporting from it rather than being someone who is cautioning us against it. Another interesting way this tension plays out, which I guess then sort of resolves itself in this ambiguity, if that can be called any kind of resolution, is this kind of hippie ethos of like back to nature, as possibly exemplified and extended in fantasy literature and The Hobbit and Tolkien, to which synthesizers and robots and so on are kind of alien and antithetical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That it, it, That's just one of the great, delicious tensions of especially the early 70s science fiction music, Hawkwind is the best example of it, right? Okay. So the, the British band Hawkwind and Lemmy from Motorhead was an original member before he broke off and formed Hawkwind. You know, they basically made this aggressive, spacey, psychedelic music, and it really was about as they described it themselves, sort of like being a barbarian in space. It was simultaneously back to nature, kind of paleo, but as if cavemen had seized this advanced
0: technology and were using it to colonize the stars and travel through space-time. I kind of love that. And they were talking, you you quote, I think, one of the members of Hawkwind talking about using the technology, the, the new music technology, like barbarians, deliberately, We're surrounded by technology that we increasingly don't understand, and so we might as well engage in it, with it, from wherever we're at
1: they were really so ahead of the curve in what seems like just a glib statement, right? Right. Because actually, as technology becomes more advanced, you know, the uh, here now in, in our own lives in the 21st century, the race is on to make it as user-friendly as possible so that more or less anyone with any level of knowledge of technology or, or in basic intelligence can still use the most advanced piece of technology. And that was already starting to happen in the early 70s. And Hawkwind kind of, whether by accident or synchronicity, or just genius, had their finger on that right at that time. The synthesizer at the beginning of the 70s are these huge, elaborate contraptions, and you really have to have a working knowledge of the guts of a synthesizer in the early 70s to play a synthesizer. Like,
0: we're talking about Moogs
1: Yeah, you, you know, for the most part, you're mellotrons. the one patching through, and a lot of times you're the person assembling these. A lot of synthesizers in the 70s came as kits, so you had to have some basic electric engineering knowledge. Now, by the end of the 70s, coincidentally, when the punks start getting their hands on synthesizers, mm-hmm. that is when they start to become just out of the box. You just dial in what your sound is going to be, press a couple buttons and start hitting the keys. Right. It made it a whole lot easier for, and I say this as a punk rocker myself, for the punks, the self-styled cavemen, you know, in a certain way, uh, right. to start harnessing this advanced technology by the end of the 70s in what became known as post-punk. And that's a big oversimplification of what post-punk is, but for the purposes of like what we're talking about in Strange Stars, you know, it is taking the stripped-down, amateur, willfully amateur ethic of punk, right. but then applying it to music that is actually innovative and progressive rather than just really loud, fast rock and roll.
0: I, I mean, it seems like a really sane... Not not only a scene, but a very empowering and kind of optimistic response to the sort of vertigo that you often get from sci-fi, which is based on this kind of future shock, you know, situation. And you mentioned Alvin Toffler's book in your book you know, to just say uh, it's mine and mine to do with as I will. I think that's one of the great (laughs) things about the end of the 70s and the punk movement and the post-punk movements is they
1: really, it wasn't so much about being alarmist. Some of it was, but some of it was just, and this is a real big break from the hippie and post-hippie and progressive rock ethos that had immediately preceded it. There's this whole idea with punks in the late 70s and post-punks that like, we can't control this, we can't stop this. We're along for the ride. <laughs> let's see where this takes us. Sometimes it's optimistic. Sometimes it's just giving in to the the nihilistic abandon of, of the entire thing and realizing you can't change it, so let's just go out with a hell of a bang.
0: Uh-huh. But I mean in, in doing that, you're still sort of colonizing it and owning it. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Devo being the perfect example.
1: Okay, you know, in the That's... late 70s of, of the band that was doing exactly. That embracing it, colonizing it, turning it into something that was bright and colorful and seemingly cheery, right? Uh, seemingly gleeful. Let me put it that way. But then, you know, by the early 80s, you have Devo singing songs like Beautiful World, which sounds like this beautiful pop song about the future and how it's
0: coming, and it's so beautiful for everyone, but not for me. It's a beautiful world, but not for me. Devo is one of those bands that I, I know them peripherally and I know their visual style, but I never really listen to them much. But what I see in what I know of them is this sort of like unsettling fusion of, of man and machine. I mean, I guess that begins with what is offensively called kraut rock. I mean, this kind of gleeful embrace of, of our kind of Android future, in a sense. Yeah, a lot of times, science fiction music sort of
1: follows behind the trends in science fiction and other media. And actually, when it comes to the whole idea of man and machine, really having a symbiosis, music was pretty pretty much like right on trend in the 70s. Because this was the time where um, the very beginnings of what would become cyberpunk uh-huh. um, were happening. And then the whole idea of, of post-humanity, you know, which has flourished ever since. The whole idea of humans adapting and adjusting and engineering themselves right. uh, to be able to prepare for life beyond Earth. And in a way, Kraftwerk, the German band Kraftwerk, is definitely the the group that first completely embodied the whole idea, you know, to the point where they had an album called The Man Machine. And that was their aesthetic. uh, That was their presentation. It's what the music sounded like, created completely synthetically. And the fact that rather than seeming to draw inspiration from any canon of science fiction, They simply seem to be science science fiction. fiction. They were their own characters in their own self-created science fiction milieu.
0: Which Bowie does too, arguably beginning with Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. And something that I think is very, very interesting and very deep about this is that in showing up in like silver lame jumpsuit with his hair orange and crazy ass makeup and moon boots and whatever, Bowie is offering a rebuke to a ethos of authenticity in rock and roll and obviously folk music and that kind of thing. Like, like a total 180 in the other direction. Right, you know,
1: uh, Bob Dylan, as much as I love him, and as much as David Bowie obviously loved him and wrote a song for him, but Bob Dylan ushered in this era of yeah, this so-called singer-songwriter authenticity, which wasn't just about being a songwriter who sang his or her own songs, which up to the pop music at that point was never a consideration that you had to write your own songs right. or sing the songs that you wrote. But with Dylan, it became that. It became you express your own inner world through the songs that you write and, and deliver, and that's the authenticity. But with Bowie, the whole idea of artificiality and uh, multiplicity, of being more than one person at one time, singing from multiple viewpoints at one time, even in his songs, he'll switch Uh, from point of view to point of view. You know, it's funny, I'm also a science fiction writer, and, you know, in in writing fiction, the term is called head hopping and used derogatorily about, you know, if someone's not able to recognize that they can't keep a steady and consistent point of view through a work of
0: fiction. It's used derogatorily of writers who hop around between heads because somehow it requires more Talent or something to write from one POV, or?
1: yeah, or to make clear what are clear deliberate shifts in
0: POV
1: that make it seem like this isn't just being done randomly. Gotcha. Which of course is an absurd notion, uh, <laughs> right? I mean,
0: it's a it's it's a reactionary notion for sure that like you have to you're required to. Right, right. do anything in any particular way. I mean, yeah. I mean yeah, exactly. I mean, mo- modernism, <laughs> I would
1: like to think, kind of did away with, with that notion in fiction. And unfortunately, a lot of genre fiction still kind of clings to that. And that was what was great about the literature of science fiction in the late 60s and early 70s was that it was breaking all these rules and being much more experimental. And David Bowie was doing the same thing in music where the whole idea of having an accessible point of view that was easy for people to enter and understand was not really of interest to him. You had to decode, you had to synthesize all these elements that he was putting together in his music. And what's really interesting, I think about it, is the fact that Bowie circa The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars in 1972 was doing this at a time when people did not know what to make of it. As soon as people saw it, then they res- they knew, they responded, but there was no way to know beforehand that this was a hunger that people had. He was so canny in the way that he was able to foresee and adapt to the future, which is, again, a living embodiment of the idea of post-humanity.
0: I want to keep circling this notion of authenticity because Peace. later today, I'm talking to Christopher King about this folk music of this little region of western Northwestern Greece. And he is very much obsessed with authenticity in music and very much thinks that all you know, all music after, you know, I don't know, after maybe there was a music industry is quote unquote, inauthentic in the sense that it's like not really connected. To the soul it, because it's culturally uprooted. It doesn't actually have meaning or agreed upon purpose in the culture. But I mean, this, you know, what Bowie is doing here, he's like intuiting his way, it seems, to a cultural need. Uh, that's what's great about Bowie. And that's
1: what's great about the era of music is that th- that viewpoint is completely correct. It was not connected to anything. It could be whatever it wanted to be to whomever wanted to decipher it.
0: But I want to say it's also, though, like perfectly connected and in sync in a weird way. By to du- the yeah, era. by being like, unconnected, yeah. it is connected. <laughs> and that's where the postmodernism
1: <laughs> comes in, I guess. But I really do firmly believe that. I do think that David Bowie, by cultivating this inauthenticity and the superficiality in his persona was able to bypass what to me it feels like a very superficial and hollow and false authenticity. Because who really is that one person? You write a song and capture your emotions. Five minutes later, you're no longer that same person. We change constantly. We're in flux constantly. So authenticity to me is something that is not only misguided, it's impossible. Especially as technology and culture accelerates to the point it is now. And to me, that's always what Bowie, his hit single right before Ziggy Stardust was Changes. And in a way that really signaled the fact as you know, so many things that that song portended, but in particular, it showed that he was now going to enter a phase that he would never leave that was this constant state of flux and
0: change and shifting identities. And interestingly, that song feels like a particularly authentic, sincere statement of, you know, where I'm at right now and where, where we're at right now.
1: I, I've always felt that song was ironic in that sense, because it is <laughs> this beautiful, heartfelt ballad type of song, but it's about how... The beautiful heartfelt ballad, authentic expression of one's soul is no longer going to be, it's almost like uh, the epitaph for that type of song, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. That was like the gravestone that he made for authenticity in music
0: before launching into where he, where he went from there. I mean, it's a high bar to set for yourself, that total, constant self-reinvention. I mean, on the one hand, it's just delightful, creative play. But on the other hand, I would imagine that over the course of a career, it becomes something of a responsibility that you've put on yourself.
1: Yeah, I think Bowie, for (laughs) sure, especially when it came to science fiction as kind of the most obvious expression of that uh, for Bowie, because of course he was always associated with science fiction throughout his career. So he would rebel against it constantly. He would have arguments with himself. He would have arguments with interviewers. He would say, you know, in one moment that he was in talks with a filmmaker about playing the lead in a film adaptation of Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, which Bowie had been a fan of Heinlein since he was a kid. Right. And yet, in another interview, he'll scoff at any kind of, hint that he would be playing such a role and say that he didn't want to be pigeonholed or typecast as a science fiction guy, you know, as this guy who's saying about space. So he constantly kind of played back and forth uh, with that. In a lot of ways, I think that Bowie's state of flux was not something that was a burden to him or mm. something that he took on or a bar he set for himself, it actually was kind of his natural state of being. He was naturally a creature of the postmodern era. Th- that was like a duck to water to him, actually, once he settled into
0: constant flux, is when he finally became comfortable with
1: himself as an artist.
0: Interestingly, like what you were saying about Bowie just now, was reminding me very much of Bob Dylan's resistance against being a protest singer after you know when they pigeonholed him that way and essentially being like, "No, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do." It didn't manifest in his case in dressing in silver lamé, right. but and you know. even me associating <laughs> Bob Dylan with the author,
1: right? Associating Bob Dylan with the authenticity. <laughs> and music is like, even that's the narrative, that's how history played out. Right. But of course, Bob Dylan was completely mercurial and assumed many guises. And of course, it would be a very shallow reading of Bob Dylan to think everything he wrote was this personal expression. You know, he wrote through fiction and through literary references and through characters that he created. Um, Oblique and, poetry. Right, but, right. Like, yeah. So to, to me, that just kind of proves my point that Bob Dylan is in many ways held as this symbol of this paragon of authentic songwriting. And yet he is, and I say this in totally complimentary terms, as artificial and as inauthentic as David Bowie. And I do mean that as a compliment. And that is something that Bowie definitely learned from Dylan in a certain way, as well as from his favorite science fiction authors. Very difficult to think of Bob Dylan cracking open a science fiction book. But if he ever had cracked (laughs) open
0: many, that's David Bowie. So in the second half of the show, what we do is the video team chooses surprise clips for us from Big Think's interview archives that could take us in any direction, actually, sort of like David Bowie. Before we get there, though, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about Afrofuturism, which I think is really interesting. So you write about Sun Ra, which is like a they were a far out jazz fusion and he, he, Sun Ra, was the leader. And a, a class that he taught at Berkeley in 1971, is this? Strange Stars does focus on the
1: 70s uh, and a lot on David Bowie. One of the major figures of science fiction music that predated um, that whole era was Sun Ra. And Sun Ra and his orchestra began recording in the late 50s. And Sun Ra w- loved synthesizers, And he loved, uh, even though his music was instrumental, so there weren't science fiction lyrics in it, he wanted to evoke space Mm. with his music. And he wanted to use the album cover imagery and the titles of his albums and songs to cohere into a vision of the future that came from the point of view of this jazz keyboardist from Alabama who donned Glittery capes and claimed to be from outer space and to have traveled the stars and to have traveled back in time as well. And sort of like dashikis, but future dashikis as well. Exactly. Right? And <laughs> it is isn't incidental that, you know, how he dressed became a major factor in, in what he did because as the 60s progressed further into the movements of black power and black consciousness, Sun Ra and what he embodied synced up so he's wearing space dashikis at the same time people on the street in America
0: are beginning to wear them, African-American people in America. There's a synergy between the history of the African diaspora, the kind of longing for a, a utopian f- space free of all of the troubles of this world, and the idea of journeying you know, light years into space or into the future... Right. And that all culminated in
1: the early 70s. Not only did Sun Ra, as you mentioned, teach a class at Berkeley, (laughs) which was more or less him delivering one of his rambling manifestos (laughs) uh, about space and time and the advances uh, of ancient African civilizations and how those might be projected into worlds beyond us in the future, or the present in his case, as he claimed. Yeah, he literally believed that, right, he'd been transported to another planet. Yep, and traveled in time and visited ancient Egypt. And so when that all synced up in the 70s, it planted the seeds for what came soon later, which was an explosion of black artists using science fiction in their music. There were hints of it in a few different smaller groups in the 70s. LaBelle did it a lot, The Undisputed Truth, but really it was Parliament and the Mothership Connection in 1975 right. that really fully popularized and kind of standardized the idea of Afrofuturism and popular music. You know, popular music you can define in many different ways. A lot of people don't define jazz as popular music. But in the 70s, you know, jazz was maybe the most commercial that it has ever been or might ever be um, with a crossover of Jazz Fusion. So the fact that Sun Ra existed and was he also made a film called Space is the Place, which really had an impact beyond his music since here he was putting his words to his ideas um, rather than just the music. So all this fed into what George Clinton and Bootsy Collins and company were doing with Mothership Connection in 1975. It really is the classic narrative of Afrofuturism, which is the inherent qualities of Ancient African civilizations and society as they have survived throughout the diaspora, now coming back together, reconnecting,
0: and saving Earth, basically, saving Mm. the human race Mm. from itself. Maybe a kind of like Old Testament Jewish idea of chosenness getting in there as well, the chosen people. Yep. The redeemers. But what puts the
1: futurism in Afrofuturism is obviously the fact that this idea is coming up in the space age, that this is taking place when humanity has produced the tools to reach other worlds. And that the white world might see itself as having done all this on its own, but it was built, the entire Western technological civilization was built on the backs of what civilizations that had come before uh, including the African civilizations.
0: And look where it ended us up in a very kind of square world where everyone wears suits and goes to nine to five jobs and you can't wear funky, sparkly boots and like, glasses with stars on them. And free whatever. your mind and your ass will follow
1: <laughs> into outer space, yeah. into the future. That's yeah, yeah. the That's the implicit thing at the end of that parliament slogan. George Clinton calls it funklessness. Uh, <laughs> and funklessness, the funk in George Clinton's mythology uh, throughout Parliament Funkadelic's music in the 70s, the funk is capitalized and it is more or less the force as Star Wars came to express it in 1977. You could replace the funk with the force in in every instance (laughs) in
0: Parliament's music, and it would
1: still read seamlessly.
0: So if we were in touch at all times with the funk, then we would be kind of on the right side of things. Absolutely, absolutely. On the the light side. And funklessness
1: is forcelessness. Funklessness is the dark
0: side. Except that in an Afro-futuristic context, we might not be calling the dark side, the dark side.
1: In the book, I talk about one of my favorite science fiction funk songs, which is by this band Instant Funk in the late 70s. And they have a song called Dark Vader. Not Darth Vader, Dark Vader, obviously to help avoid a lawsuit. Right. Um, but basically, it there's some spoken word to it, and it tells the story of Darth Vader from a sympathetic point of view. (laughs) Now, this is 1978 before it was ever revealed to Star Wars fans who Darth Vader really was and and before Anakin Walker became a somewhat sympathetic character, right? Right. Uh, And so before anyone else had ever painted or hinted at the fact that Darth Vader might be a sympathetic character, here was Instant Funk in 1978 singing the song Dark Vader, basically about what a symbol of black power he was. (laughs) Of course, James Earl Jones is voicing him Um, and how he is someone who should be viewed differently than how he's portrayed in Star Wars and that he uh, actually
0: should be praised and worshipped as being this powerful black figure. That's awesome. I mean, you... I think if you follow the if you follow the logic too far, it doesn't. You can't really hold up because you can't like blow up all Duran and actually be okay. You know? Right, right. But
1: but you know it's the same way where you know you listen to a rap song and there might be things in there that you think are violent and questionable, and it's not necessarily advocating that exact thing. Maybe Darth he, Vader did what he had to do. Yeah, like yeah. Bragadocio. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Like it, basically, point being, Darth vader is a bad mfer and that's just (laughs) and for that alone he should be viewed a little bit uh, more positively
0: i think on that note we're going to go to the surprise clips and we are at the mercy of the producers this may have nothing to do with music we'll just talk in whatever direction if it circles back like brian eno says in your book no matter how far i reach out i end up circling back We'll, we'll see they're taking us to religion Okay, this is Reza Aslan, and it's called How Religious Believers Describe
2: God. There's a cognitive psychologist by the name of Justin Barrett who did a series of really fascinating studies about the way in which people think about God. Um, He asked a group of devoutly religious people. Uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Uh, he basically gave them a form uh, to fill out about um, the ways in which they think about the divine. And for the most part, what he found was that they answered in theologically correct ways when talking about God as being, say, omniscient or omnipresent. But then, he began to engage the same subjects in conversation. He asked them to start describing, in regular language, how they think about God. And what he discovered is that almost every single person, when forced to start talking about God, violated those core theological principles of God being, for instance, omnipresent and omniscient. In fact, what he discovered is that the more they talked about God, the more it sounded like they were describing some person that they met on the street. And this goes to a fundamental aspect about the way that we think about the divine, whether we are ourselves believers or not. And that is that unconsciously, we can't help but to imagine God as essentially a divine version of ourselves. When we conceive of God, we unconsciously, innately impose upon God our own personality, our own virtues, our own vices, our own strengths, our own weaknesses. We project upon God our own biases and bigotries. We implant in God human characteristics, human personality, human desires, all along with, humans, with superhuman powers. And so as a result, what we really do, again, whether we're aware of it or not, is we divinize ourselves. If you believe in God, then what you believe in is something that is, by definition, utterly unhuman. And so the question becomes, how do you talk about that thing? How do you think about that thing? How do you form a relationship with something that is utterly unhuman? Well, the way you do so is by humanizing that thing. In fact, the entire history of human spirituality can be viewed as one long, intimately linked and remarkably cohesive narrative in which human beings increasingly humanize the divine. Until, of course, in the person of Jesus, God literally becomes a human being. That I think more than anything else, explains why Christianity is the most successful religion in the world because, in a way, it it scratches an unconscious itch that we all have. Our brains work in such a way that we are compelled to conceive of God in human terms. It's an impulse that that we're born with. It goes back deep in our human evolution. What Christianity says is, well, God is not just human-like, God is literally a human being. And imagine how appealing that notion is because if you want to think about God, you know, it, it's, a, it's an impossible task. It's, it's, a, it's, it's so difficult to conceive of something like God. And what Christianity says is that it's not that hard, actually. You want to know what God is like? Imagine the most perfect person. Perfectly good, perfectly compassionate, uh, perfectly sinless. That's God. That's a pretty easy thing to imagine.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, interesting first thing to throw at me being the atheist that I am. It's interesting to hear a lot of those viewpoints because a lot of the language that very erudite gentleman was, was <laughs> using about religion is absolutely what a lot of science fiction seeks to do. There is a lot of the whole idea of projecting what is our individual and collective essence as human beings onto not necessarily gods, but sometimes godlike beings, including aliens. And of course, it's been pointed out many times by many thinkers, the whole idea of aliens being more or less our modern-day version in our modern-day mythology of angels visiting Earth. You know, particularly Robert Anton Wilson wrote a lot about this in his work you know, God comes up a lot in science fiction, a lot, and a lot in the science fiction music of the 70s as well. There's a book I write about in Strange Stars called Lord of Light by Rogers Elasny, which came out in the 60s right. and was one of the books that was a big influence on a lot of science fiction musicians. And it basically posited a future in which human beings, and it's again, it's a work of post-humanity, human beings have evolved through technology, to the point in the far future where they have basically assumed the personae of Buddhist deities. Right. Um, And they begin to confuse themselves in, in interesting ways. And I do think that spirituality, to one degree or another, becomes a very strong underlying component of a lot of science fiction music, there's a song by Chris Berg, the singer-songwriter who had had some bigger hits in the U.S. in the '80s, like uh,
0: "The Lady in Red," that okay. a lot of people might remember. That if they one were like, of The that lady age. in red. That's that one? it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, Please do not sue me, I'm record
1: company. <laughs> and he, you know, he would write songs in the '70s that were about visitors from outer space, and it turns out in the twist at the end, Twilight Zone, guess who this visitor from outer space was? Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, And then (laughs) uh, in a much more subtle way, you had people like John Anderson, the singer of Yes Mm. in the 70s, who they have seemed to have so many songs. Yes, does, about science fiction and outer space. And as it turns out, many of them are much more spiritual in basis, in a new agey kind of way. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily about spaceships. They're more about a cosmic consciousness. And there's a really big blurring of that line, especially in the early 70s, between science fiction, music, and spirituality that is a really interesting one. In a lot of ways, religion and science fiction have a basic... A basic idea. And and that's not just me trying to uh, snarkily say that religion is fiction, (laughs) but I am, I do mean to say that they're both about trying to understand the universe and figure out what happens beyond, beyond death, beyond space time, beyond Earth, that those common impulses in many ways
0: inform both. I almost called religion a genre. (laughs) 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 While you were talking, it it occurred to me with astonishment that somehow L. Ron Hubbard never came up. He writes Dianetics, which is a work of science fiction about aliens coming to Earth as the basis of a religion. Absolutely. And he he was established as a
1: science fiction
0: writer, you know, in the golden age of science
1: fiction and was right shoulder to shoulder with Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and everyone else. Not quite of that. Stature. He, he was in his own mind and now, of course, in infamy, he is as <laughs> famous as those people. But a really great example, right, of using science and outlandish science fictional tropes translated into real life and employed in the establishment of a cult.
0: I mean, I feel like the vast distances of space and of time, they open up in us this sense of awe mingled with horror that is similar to the spiritual impulse that you can imagine ancient humans looking at the sun or a mountain and being like, wow, do not kill us. We love you. And of course,
1: you know, anyone in the Enlightenment would argue about the, the commonality of that impulse. But, you know, there's one, maybe the impulse is similar, but the methodology is, is right, is strikingly different. Indeed. And that is where the tension would come between science fiction and religion, you know. Science fiction, for the most part, does try to use the basis of known science as a, as a Launchpad. However, what's interesting about the more experimental and transgressive science fiction of the 70s is that while uh, a lot of writers like Michael Moorcock and Thomas Dish and people like that were writing what is science fiction, And Brian Aldiss, another great example, by using stories that don't necessarily rely on hard science that aren't necessarily trying to be scientifically rigorous. They actually stray more toward the type of religious awe of the universe that the universe is ultimately unknowable. And that human beings, because that's really the big thing, is the universe knowable fundamentally or unknowable?
0: Well, because at the fringes of science, you know, especially like theoretical physics, we end up in a realm to which we cannot relate rationally. And the 70s is when, 60s and 70s is when
1: quantum physics began to filter into science fiction. And then the word quantum begins to pop up in the works of Hawkwind and things like that as the 70s go on, it's that sort of indeterminacy. As as a bedrock or lack of bedrock in one's cosmology.
0: Yeah, which dovetails nicely with the ambivalence we were t- and ambiguity and sort of gender fluidity that we were talking about with Bowie earlier. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Bowie's gender depends on who the uh, observer is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if you put Bowie in a box, there's no way of knowing whether he's alive or dead or right. male or female.
1: Or neither. Or, or neither both. or both.
0: <laughs> I think we have time for one more clip, and this one is called Three Ways to Make American Politicians Better at Their Jobs. And the speaker is Dambisa Moyo, who is an economist and an author.
3: So I'm an eternal optimist about how and why we should continue to innovate every aspect of our lives, and whether that's science and technology um, imbuing more efficiencies in how we run businesses, but also how we deliver healthcare and education. So as far as I'm concerned, I've adopted the same lens as we think about the political process. So just to give you some flavor um, for some of the proposals on the politician side, I consider the argument that we should perhaps increase the pay of politicians um, and actually force them to justify their compensation. Um, Singapore is, is a great example of this model. In Singapore, the head of state Uh, The prime minister earns over $1.4 million a year in compensation, Um, but to me, what's even more interesting is that the ministers who are responsible for education and healthcare and infrastructure, et cetera, um, earn 30 to 40% bonuses based on certain metrics and outcomes, so how GDP performs, whether life expectancy increases, whether inflation declines. Um, I think that that is a very interesting model for us to explore because I think it could impose Discipline, um, By the way, a discipline around reward for performance, which we already see and it applies to many of us as we work in the private sector. So certainly worth for con- consideration. I think that that could actually force politicians to think a little bit more long term. Another proposal um, on the politician side um, is to basically think about minimum standards for politicians. And this is an idea that really, for me, uh, stuck out as I thought about how the uh, British Parliament uh, looked back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, in that period, the average age was higher, um, on average, about 60 years old. Um, but also, the skill set was incredibly varied. They had teachers, lawyers, doctors. Farmers. Um, and so people had had other careers and had a better understanding of how the economy works because they came to become parliamentarians having experienced different sectors of the economy. Today, um, to uh, some of the uh, citations that I referenced in the book, the average age is closer to 40 years old. Um, and many politicians actually have no experience except having been uh, professional politicians. And I think that that can be quite a disservice in terms of the com- not really understanding the complexity of how an economy works. A 3rd I'll just very quickly give you one more example of how what we might consider in terms of uh, politicians is we might think about extending The terms of political office. This is essentially to get away from this idea of having elections every two years, as we do in the United States. Mexico is an example of a country where the president is in office only once for six years, Um, and so I think you get away from this desire for politicians to constantly court, or tempt, and try to seduce voters with policies that may be short-term appealing, but over the long term are incredibly damaging for the economy and ultimately for um, for generations to come. Um, Brazil, the uh, senators have eight to nine year terms. Um, again, it's really picking on this theme of extending the, uh, the thinking to better match the economic challenges um, and economic headwinds that the global economy faces.
1: Take us away, Jason. Well, there's plenty to unpack <laughs> there, isn't there? Um, David Bowie would have a field day talking about this if he were here because he, Um, especially in the 70s, was injecting quite a bit of politics into his music. The most obvious case being his album Diamond Dogs, which was originally intended to be an adaptation of one of his favorite novels, George Orwell's 1984. And Orwell's widow was not... She was not on board. She was not happy with all these young people mucking around in her husband's uh, admittedly very formidable legacy. So she denied David Bowie the rights to adapt 1984. And what he did is he made Diamond Dogs in which he has a couple songs that reference 1984, including a song called 1984, and then uh, wove around that his own dystopian tale. What wound up being expressed, I think, in Diamond Dogs uh, in that whole era is the idea that the political system and the political process were – inextricably tied into and fueling the kind of technocratic race toward the future that also was just as likely or more likely to result in totalitarianism, in economic collapse.
0: I mean, Major Tom kind of hints at a similar... In the direction of a similar critique as well, like right. well, here we here we go into the brave new future, but where are we actually going? And- right, and this all ties into
1: what was going on in the actual space race and space program, um, because in the 70s, you know, we land on the moon in 1969, and it's rightfully this joyous and triumphant turning point in human history, but almost immediately, especially as subsequent moon landings become almost commonplace in the late 60s and early 70s, it becomes more of this question and a political talking point that hints at a bigger political issue, which is at what point do we use resources, public resources, to fund something like space travel while there are people in need and institutions in need on earth. At what point are we using public funds to build a life raft for probably not all of us? But that debate was, and that point of view was something that was being factored majorly into day-to-day pragmatic U.S. politics in the 70s. Uh, And something that actually helped kind of lead to this decline in public enthusiasm as doubt and cynicism kind of crept in to the point where in the mid-70s, the space program, which if you follow, if you plotted that linearly from Apollo 11, you would assume by 1980, we'd be on Mars, right? right? Uh, Maybe a hotel on Mars. And of course, (laughs) that's not the progression that things took. And David Bowie, he also drifted away from science fiction in the mid-70s, singing about space, singing about dystopia, and began to, first of all, just make blue-eyed Soul music, you know, <laughs> yeah, young right. Americans that had nothing to do with anything fantastical in that regard, right? And then slowly began uh, bringing in Station to Station and then the Berlin Trilogy, which began to exhibit a kind of futurism that wasn't... Blatant. It wasn't uh, overt or or textual in the lyrics. It was something that was expressed in the methodology and, and the arrangement and instrumentation of the the music itself, the instrumental it. parts of it. So Bowie started to realize that singing about space or singing about an oppressive near future or future, that those were things that are very charged ideas. And that to really get to the fundamental aspect of why people wondered about space and yearned for a- anything that that is science fictional mm. in their lives... That by embodying that rather than singing about it and by having his music actually express it and and be emblematic of it was going to be a much more profound way of expressing futurism than doing something that could be seen as either advocating
0: or being against uh, what was actually happening. He's moving in what you might call an apolitical direction, Absolutely. getting himself out of these binary conversations. And then we end up in, you know, with the statement he releases days after his death, Black Star. Three days, I believe, yeah, before he died. Before he died. You know, which is such a like far out, oblique, kind of poetic, certainly sci-fi inflected, but you cannot easily put your finger on it.
1: And the fact that he made that album knowing he was going to die and knowing that he was keeping uh, his terminal condition from the public, he had, of course, had no way of knowing that the album, he would die days after the album came out, but he knew he would be dying either right before it came out or sometime right. soon after, that that was an inevitability. And in that he was maybe not trying to make a big final grand statement, because that's not Bowie, Right. but to make a big final grand apotheosis of what he had done so far. And the fact that science fiction played a significant part of his final expression really goes to the point of even though we drifted back and forth and used it in different ways, science fiction was always a fundamental part not just of his art, but of his being.
0: Yeah, somehow, getting to something authentically true about David Bowie. Right, after after <laughs> you know, going back and forth and saying, well, I'm not Major
1: Tom, <laughs> I'm not Ziggy Stardust, I'm not Halloween Jack, the anti-hero of Diamond Dogs. He wound up by the end sort of intimating that, yes, I, I am all of them and always have been.
0: Jason Heller, this was awesome. Thank you for coming to Think Again today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. And Jason's new book is Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade, Sci-Fi Exploded. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you for listening. Um, If you're new to the show, please take a minute to rate or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. It makes a really big difference in terms of who else can discover us. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us.